We're going to pick up in Isaiah 62 tonight. Lord willing, we will finish the book of Isaiah tonight, which means we'll have the opportunity to begin in Jeremiah next week. As we pick up here in chapter 62, there's a couple of um, chronological points, dots on a timeline that I want us to keep in mind. Um, and not, not just in the sense of the history of the world, but also in the sense of the way that the book of Isaiah is laid out. One of the things that I want you to keep in mind is starting about chapter 40 and moving through the rest of the book, um, the prophecies, the oracles, the passages we have of Isaiah um, are all looking beyond the lifetime of Isaiah. And so a good deal of the audience he has in mind as he speaks to is an audience that's no longer living in Israel. It's an audience that has already been carried away by Babylon, which, side note, is where chapter 39 leaves us. Um, and so, so the Israel that he's writing to has already seen the destruction of the land, the destruction of the temple, uh, and many of the things that we've read about talk about Israel returning back to the land. But once we get to Isaiah 53 and the, the final culminating servant song, uh, this passage that is so clearly uh, and fully fulfilled by what Jesus did on the cross, the rest of the book focuses chronologically primarily on on uh, history from that point on. In other words, uh, just as we generally, in the way that we speak about time, divide history into BC and AD, um, Isaiah, after 53, is all AD. It's all focusing here. And sometimes it's hard to keep that in mind. It's hard to remember that because when you look at the history of Israel, they've been removed from the land and then restored to the land, and then removed from the land again. Okay? In other words, as I mentioned, right after the days of Isaiah, within a hundred years of his life, Israel is deported under the kingdom of Babylon, taken away, and later, about 70 years later, they return, they resettle Jerusalem. This is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. Um, and they're there for 400 years between our Old Testament and New Testament. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he's in Israel, and the temple's been rebuilt. Okay? But about a generation after Jesus, in 70 AD, the Romans come in, and they wipe Jerusalem off the face of the map. And so again, we have an Israel without a land. We have an Israel without a temple. Okay? It's that period of time, starting with the ministry of Jesus moving forward, starting with the beginning of the kingdom of God, um, that Isaiah primarily has in mind in our chapters tonight, being after Isaiah 53. And so when we look at the things that he talks about, beginning in 54 and rolling the whole way, they look at where everything is headed. And one of the things that we've seen uh, is that things are both getting better and worse. So the message of this great servant and the salvation available in God is going out to the ends of the earth, and that's growing, but so is idolatry, so is apostasy. And so the book is simultaneously moving towards salvation and towards judgment, okay? 
Um, but it's important that we keep in mind where we are in the timeline because a good deal of judgment involves, for example, destruction of Jerusalem. And so when we read about that passage, we have to go, okay, was it this one or this one or, or one that is still to come? And that can be a challenge. So keeping in mind where we are tonight will be helpful with that. We're going to pick up in chapter 62, okay? And just by way of reminder, chapter 61 uh, begins with this same servant that we've been seeing throw, show up throughout the book in chapter 11, uh, in chapter 42, in chapter 49, in chapters 52 and 53. And he speaks... Uh, and he says, this is the time the Spirit has sent me to declare both the year of the Lord's favor, it says in 61.2, and the day of vengeance of our God. And it's this passage that Jesus reads, and he says, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? Jesus identifies himself as this servant. Okay? And so after laying out these things, now we jump into 62 verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And so here, the voice that we have speaking in chapter 62 expresses commitment, determination. For the sake of Jerusalem, I will not stop until the mission to make them righteous is completed in fact, notice verse 2, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And so here we're looking forward to this new destiny for Jerusalem and it includes a new name. And this is something we see characteristically of the way that God works in people's lives. So it comes to a man whose name is Abram, who mean, uh, which means uh, the exalted father which is an ironic name to have because he has no children okay his wife is barren they're both in their old age and God comes and he promises them a child but there's a point in Abram's life where God says not Abram anymore Abraham which is father of nations which is kind of doubling down because he still doesn't have a child at this point okay uh, think of Jacob Jacob, who is named uh, the catcher, the one who grabs, because when he and Esau, being twins, are born, Esau is born first, but as he's birthed, Jacob is holding on to his heel. It's as if they were wrestling in the womb. And so he takes on this name, uh, and the name fits him, because he's a wrestler by nature, and he's a finagler, and he's a schemer, and he goes about life, but he comes to a point in life where he hits a wall, where all of his past self-salvation plans finally fall apart and he finds himself running from one man his father-in-law Laban and running towards another man who he's also taken advantage of his brother Esau and Esau is coming with 400 men and so Jacob prays and he says God you gave me this family you gave me these promises please save me and then he goes right back to saving himself he turns around and he says okay here's what we're going to do I'm going to bribe the pants off my brother so that he leaves me alone and so in the middle of the night, he separates himself from his family just in case Esau plans a surprise attack. And surprise, surprise, he's attacked by some man in the middle of the night and he discovers that he is wrestling with God himself. And God touches his hip and he limps for the rest of his days. No longer can he save himself. He has to rely on the one he prays to. And God gives him a new name. He says, no longer will you be Jacob the wrestler. Now you are Israel, governed by God. New names are significant. 
In fact, there's a promise in the book of Revelation for all those who follow Jesus that we all selectively and collectively will be given new names when all is said and done. And that's helpful because a name in biblical mindset, as we see even in those examples, isn't just what people call you when they need you. It's a reflection of your character. Your name and your reputation are bound together ideas. And so the promise of a new name here is a promise of a fresh start, of a true identity, of who you were meant to be as opposed to who you've been in the past. But it goes further, not only a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give, it says you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now, that's kind of a, a strange picture there. It's as if, it's as if you're the beautiful creation, uh, the crown, you know, the thing that we associate with being the jewelry of royalty. He says here, that's what God is doing in your life. Um, but I think it's easier to understand this if first uh, we look at something that uh, Paul says in the book of Philippians. Now, specifically here, Paul is addressing a church in Philippi, a church that he has planted, a church that he's very close to and that he loves. And what he says to this church in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. He says, you, you church, I love you, I long for you, you are my joy, and he also says, crown. And the idea here is of, of his precious treasure, right? In fact, it may even be that he's saying the great reward for my faithfulness is you. You are, you know, the reason for my work and for my toil. But in Isaiah, when it involves God, it, it probably presses another idea as well. You see, in the book of Jeremiah, God says that Israel was supposed to be like a beautiful sash, an accent piece. And Jeremiah takes a physical sash and he buries it in the ground and he basically destroys it. And then he puts it back on and he says, this is what it's like for God to wear Israel. The idea there was that somehow Israel was to draw the world's attention to God. Again, it was an accent piece. It wasn't supposed to be the significant and most important or highest or most beautiful, but it was to draw attention, similar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, let your good works shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay? Our works are to be an accent that draws attention to the goodness of God. That's the idea here, is that they will be something that draws attention to God's goodness, his royalty, his sovereignty. Verse 4, we get some of this new name uh, that he referred to. You shall no longer be termed forsaken and you shall no longer be termed desolate but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married okay so two new two new names she is my delight and married and then we are given the reasons for the lord delights in you and your land shall be married verse 5 for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Now notice there's a double image there. There's one that's very common in scripture of this marriage-like relationship between God and his people. 
But when it says, your sons shall marry you, the idea here is the sons of Israel shall marry the land. It's a picture of stability, security, permanence. Okay? No more out of the land and in the land. No more falling into the pattern, for example, in the book of Judges, where Israel turns away from God and begins to worship other gods to do their own things, to go their own way, and then God delivers them over to their enemies, and then they cry out for deliverance, and God raises up a judge, and the judge brings them back to God, and then the next generation, it goes around. This instead speaks of stability, security. We'll see more of that tonight. Verse 6, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. He basically says, I've appointed people to continue to call out, to be looking for this to happen until it happens. I've appointed people to continue to talk about it and remind people of it uh, and teach on this until it happens. And the idea here is, of course, one of guarantee. God says, go ahead and start looking on the horizon. Go ahead and continuously remind me. Go ahead and ask for me to do what I said I would do. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand, And by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Again, a picture of stability, that they will no longer be threatened by enemies. Verse 10, go through Go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And so not only here does he call them to continuously talk about it, to pray about it, to call on God to do what he would do, but also to prepare for it. Build up the roads, be be prepared for the coming. Now, that again speaks of salvation, but notice how quickly we shift here to judgment in, in 63 verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? Now, actually, this is the second time in Isaiah that Edom, this small nation to the south of Israel, the one that comes from the lineage of Esau, Jacob's brother, is a stand-in for not merely Edom, but the nations. As we'll see in just a minute, it's going to widen out. But notice here, there's someone approaching. The question is, who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Okay, And so in this description here, we see military might and splendor of his apparel, high rank. And then the person that is seen speaks, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And then we have a second question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And so the garment here is he marches along, he's clothed he's in crimson, as it mentions earlier. And the question is, why is it red? Is it because you've been treading grapes? 
And notice here the voice picks up on this imagery but uses it in a different way. He says, well, sort of. He says, I've trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, there we've gone from Edom to the peoples, you see that? From the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, which is kind of intense. He says here, yeah, my clothes are all red in the blood of my enemies. It's strong language. It's, yes, I guess you could say I've tread a wine press, but this was a wine press of wrath and not of grapes. Now, this idea is picked up again in, uh, in Revelation 19. And it identifies the speaker here. So here in Revelation 19, verse 11, the first half of 19 is a rejoicing, kind of like we saw in the first half of Isaiah, of the salvation that God has brought. All of those who God has saved, uh, praising God together. And so look at uh, verse 1 there, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Uh, Look at verse 5, and from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then this great multitude responds, hallelujah, there in verse 6. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exult. But when we get down to uh, chapter 19, we move from this picture of a wedding and a celebration to this picture of a battlefield. And one uh, who is prepared to lead the armies, verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, a direct reference to what we were just reading in Isaiah. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His clothes, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so here we see Jesus clothed for battle, okay? Uh, And as we see here, he's the one who trods the winepress of God's wrath. Now, that can be a little bit hard, I think, sometimes for us to reconcile with the Jesus of the Gospels, but that's why it's so significant, uh, because Jesus' coming is both, like we saw in chapter 61, the beginning of the years of Jubilee, the proclaiming of the acceptable years of the Lord's favor, and it's also the significant day of vengeance of our God. In fact, it's interesting to me, I would suggest to you that there in Revelation 19, where it points out that his clothes are dipped in blood prior to that, that that's not necessarily the blood of what's about to happen. Chronologically, that doesn't really make sense. The blood there on his own clothes is his own blood. In fact, uh, later on, Isaiah uses the language for this same event, not a winepress of wrath, but a cup of wrath. And when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his crucifixion, the one that he's prophesied throughout his ministry, this is where I'm going, this is what's going to happen. For the Son of Man must 
die, he says to his disciples. But as he's praying the night before he's betrayed in the garden, he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the cup there is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus there freely and fully and willingly uh, is taking on the judgment that we have accrued because of our sins, the consequences for our rebellion against God. Like it says of the servant here in Isaiah 53, he bore our sins on his shoulders. And so uh, that's why when we get to Romans chapter 8, he says, for anyone who is in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no wrath left. That cup was drank to the dregs. But also... Significantly, Jesus is not merely Savior, but Lord. As we see him dawned in uh, Revelation 19, he is the one who the nations stand against, who they gather against to resist. Not just once, side note, but if you keep reading in Revelation, twice. And so there's a recognition here of the fact, um, like Jesus says in his ministry, that there's two ways it goes with the stumbling block. He says, I'm the stumbling block. I'm the one that was promised. And either you will stumble over it, just a remark of humility, or it will crush. There's an option. There's an opportunity. Um, but like I said, back in Isaiah, what we're seeing is this growing vision of salvation and this growing vision of judgment. And it's worth mentioning that the two go hand in hand. This day uh, where there's the treading of the enemies of God, the way that they're expressing that animosity towards God is that they've gathered around Israel to once and for all deal with and destroy the people of God. And so that's why it's both a day of deliverance and a day of judgment. That's why it's both a day of salvation and a day of wrath. Verse 4, back in Isaiah 63, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption had come. I looked up, but there was none to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now, it's important to remember here, and we'll see this again and again, that both when God talks about enmity against particular Jews, and when he talks about enmity against the nations, that that's not everybody that there is both uh, those from the nations who respond to God, who experience salvation, who believe, who find forgiveness, uh, and those who are not, and it's the same within Israel. Verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. Now here in verse 7, we move on to something new. And the chapter break in chapter 64 tends to obscure this, but all the way from verse 7 through chapter 64, all the way to the end of uh, chapter 64, is one big movement. Okay. And it's kind of a surprising one because what it is is basically a lament. Now, if you read through the Psalms, you'll find a handful of laments. Uh, they are basically... Uh, a song, but instead of a song of praise, it's a crying out to God in pain. Now, most of the time, laments express innocence. And so they say things like, God, why have you forsaken me? I have been faithful. My friends have turned against me, but I've done none wrong. Where are you? When will you deliver me? When will you uphold your promises? 
This lament is unique in that it also includes a confession. And so it's a lament that includes and takes on the realities uh, that part of the problem, all of the problem, if you will, is our fault for our rebellion and our our sin. Um, But what's its purpose here in Isaiah? Laments are about the in-between. The time between the promises of God and their fulfillment. The time between the dangers of this life and deliverance from them. Here, I would suggest to you that this lament is functioning as words that we can use in this time between Jesus beginning and finishing, in between Jesus who has come and Jesus who will come again, in between God beginning our salvation and deliverance and his accomplishment of it. In fact, that's why confession makes sense in it, because we don't need to merely be delivered from our enemies unless we include the enemy within There's a significant, deeper problem that we're longing for. And so a lament, kind of the basic summary of a lament is how long? How long, O Lord? Right? Now we've seen many times in Isaiah so far that one of the things to do when God has made promises is that we can praise him for them now, before they're fulfilled. God says, I will do these things, and we can worship him now and say, praise God, thank you for these things. We express our faith in doing so. But a lament, even though it says, God, will you? When will you? Do it now, Lord, is also an expression of faith. In fact, the laments we find in Scripture are not just examples for us, but the very word of God. They're open to us to model our own pain, and we should feel free to utilize them. And I bring this all up, and I kind of harp on this tonight, because I don't think we know as Christians very often how to lament well. And it's real easy to prove. Just read Psalm 88. Read it and see how uncomfortable it makes you. Imagine what it'd be like to sing it corporately on a Sunday as we finish the song, and there's no hope, and there's no deliverance, and the last line is, and darkness is my only friend. Amen. But laments are very significant. One of the reasons they're significant is because we really do feel the things people feel in the laments. And the laments remind us that it's okay to feel that way in God's presence. To take all that we are, our struggles, our doubts, our fears, and bring them to him. Another reason why laments are significant is because they help us to voice what other people are going through. It gives a voice to the voiceless. And so we enter in and we cry out with others, even if our experiences aren't the same, and in doing so, we cultivate empathy and understanding. But here, this lament is either, again, something that we, at one time or another, something that Christians in one place or one time or another over the course of waiting for Jesus to return can sing or can pray or can meditate on truthfully and honestly with longing. Or, there's another possibility here, which is that it sounds really good, but it's not an accurate telling of what's going on. We'll see that in just a second, but we pick up here again in verse 7. Notice this lament begins with a recounting, with a remembrance, with a walking through the history of Israel. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he granted them, according to his compassion. 
according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they're my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So this is looking back on the Exodus and remembering that God, out of love and power, delivers Israel from their enslavement, takes them out of Egypt, redeems them, and takes care of them, enters into their suffering, and delivers them from it. And so he begins here, and again, this is a common trait of laments. The first recognition that a lament makes is, God, I know you're capable of saving. I know you're capable of delivering. I've read the stories. You're the one who's done these things. But notice verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, and therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Now, I just want to make a side note there that this danger that Israel falls into that's labeled grieving the Holy Spirit is not just an Old Testament danger. It's something that Paul warns us as Christians about in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, using this same language, and he just says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? And so what did that look like in the days of Israel? It looked like unbelief. It looked like murmuring and complaining it looked like uh, a lack of faith that God would take care of them. It looked like stumbling over themselves to chase after sin. It looked like all sorts of things. But God was dwelling in the midst of Israel. The tabernacle was right there. The presence in the cloud and in the pillar of fire. But they acted as if he wasn't real. It's the same for us and it's also different. We don't have a tabernacle. We don't have the glory of God resting on a building, but Paul reminds us, do you not know that you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That God is present with you even in a greater way than he was with Israel? And that means as we go about life in the midst of the presence of God, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can resist what he's doing in our life. Now there is a significant difference with a little bit of overlap. Depends on how you want to use language. But we always need to maintain a difference between discipline and judgment. Okay? Or discipline and punishment is helpful because that gets us thinking about children. Ideally, the difference between the two is that discipline is for the sake of the one being disciplined to make them better. Punishment is just what you deserve. It's the consequence for your actions. In fact, a lot of times, punishment is about helping you to feel what you've made other people feel, okay? But discipline is this idea that, that God works in our life because he loves us and doesn't allow us to constantly continue in sin because it's harmful to us, and so he makes life hard. And the author of Hebrews tells it straight. He says nobody enjoys discipline while it's happening. But it's still something to rejoice in because it's evidence of the fact that we are God's children. Just as a parent disciplines their child and lets that other kid just go off with his life, right? He says if we didn't see that discipline in our lives, it would be as if we were bastard children. Our, our, uh, our wow, patrimony would be questioned. That's what I mean. Is it really? Is God really our father? Are we really one of his kids? And so you can read this kind of either way. The suggestion here in verse 10 uh, is clearly one of discipline. God doesn't abandon Israel, but he does 
school them. He does discipline them. He does bring it about. It's the same in our lives. Verse 11, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like a livestock that go down to the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Do you hear the implication there? It's right under the surface. This is what you used to do. You remembered your people then. Why do you not remember us now? Look at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribe of your heritage. Now, it may be here that the speaker is Isaiah himself. If I was reading Jeremiah right now, I'd say it definitely is. Because Jeremiah, we know, is the weeping prophet. And we have what we call the confessions of Jeremiah, which means that he enters into the suffering of his people and he cries out on their behalf, and he confesses their sins on their behalf. He, he's that way. We haven't seen much of that in Isaiah. There's places. Um, but it may be here that Isaiah is looking at all of these things, and even here, speaking about his own ministry. Because all the way back in the beginning of Isaiah, when he's commissioned in Isaiah 6, he says, I'm going to send you to a people, but their hearts will be hard, and they will not listen. And that's the plan. He says, I'm going to give them over to blindness. I'm going to give them over to hardness. And so here, again, look at verse 17. Why do you make us wander from your way and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants and the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Now, those would be appropriate words for those living in the exile of Babylon. Jerusalem trampled, temple destroyed, deported and living in a foreign place. No longer the people of God with the land of God and the temple of God and the sacrifices to God and the worship of God. But as we keep reading, maybe not. Chapter 64, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that you would show up, that it'd be like the sky just parted and God entered back into history and got involved, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountain quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, nor eye has seen a God besides you who acts at those who wait for him. For Isaiah here, the distinction between the God of Scripture and the other gods is that only this one, only the God of the Bible has stepped into human history, made himself known, done the miraculous. He says in verse 5, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry, and we sinned. 
In our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Okay, and so he owns up here, and he, he recognizes, he says, the distance is because of our sin. He says, even our righteousness is like a dirty garment. He says, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And so he's pretty strong in his confession here. He lays it out. But now, verse 8, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, yes, we've gone astray. Yes, we've been wicked. Yes, we aren't seeking you out. But you're the God who made us. You're the God who creates. We're vessels in your hands. It's not an accusation that says, I'm not going to take the blame for my sins because you made me this way. It's an expression of desperation. It says, I may have made myself this way, but I can't unmake myself this way. Only you can do that. You are the potter. You are the one who can do it. Verse 9, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruined. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And so, again, there's confession and ownership and desperation, and there's also longing and holding God to his word and asking him to show up. Now, the reason I suggest that this lament may not be the words of the faithful or even a good model for us, although it still can be a good model for us in this context, is because when God speaks in chapter 65 and responds, if chapter 65 is a response to what we just read, it's a little bit surprising. It's a little bit shocking. But there are a few elements, and I'll show them to you, that seems very much like he's applying to that case. Now, I've been studying ahead a little bit in Jeremiah, but we'll see the same thing. There's an occasion in Jeremiah where basically we find a confession, and a beautiful one, where Israel just owns up and says, God, we have messed up. We have been in our ways for so long. Please forgive us. We repent. And effectively, God says, do you really? Because this is what repentance would really look like. And he questions the authenticity of their cry. That may be what's going on here. I'll show you what I mean. Chapter 65, verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, Paul takes these words in Romans chapter 10. And he basically says, that's us, us non-Jewish folks, that God had turned from Israel and turned to a people who weren't looking for him and brought about salvation, that the message of what God had done in the midst of the Jews and even for the Jews had now gone out to a people that weren't looking and he was making his name known there. And then verse two, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in ways that are not good following their own devices. That people... You wouldn't get this if you were just reading Isaiah, but Paul says that people is the Jews. 
They're the rebellious people. So we have two groups here. We have the one who don't know who the name is going out in the midst of, and then we have the rebellion, the rebellious who won't listen, who won't hear. Now, Paul makes clear here that that is not a permanent consequence. That he says hardening has come to the Jews in part until the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, until God has done his work and accomplished it among the nations, and then he will turn back to Israel. In other words, God hardening the Jews, what we see here in Isaiah, is an act of mercy for us. And then Paul goes on, and it's amazing the logic he uses, and he actually says, actually, it's an act of mercy for the Jews as well, because it's the Gentiles who become Christians who will provoke them to jealousy and draw them back. Now, we don't have time to review that whole argument tonight. But notice here, he speaks, and his view of the people is uh, that he has spread out his hands all day. In other words, the lament says, God, why, where are you? And he says, I'm right here, reaching out to you constantly. Look at what it says in verse 3. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meats in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I'm too holy for you. What he describes here is a people who are way off base, who are hypocrites. In fact, the language that's used here uh, in the closing two chapters of Isaiah of idolatry, it's different than the idolatry we've encountered. We know Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech. We know what worship of those gods look like, but what we encounter here with the eating of pig, this stuff is new. It's different. What we encounter here uh, that's not the high places but the gardens, what we encounter here that involves uh, some sort of worship in cemeteries, it's all completely new. It's looking to something else. I think, and this is my opinion, I think this language is particularly chosen not to explicitly uh, uh, speak of particular types of idolatry, but to really press the limits of offense before God. What we see here is an Israel that is living exactly opposite of what they've been called to live in. It, these words, I would imagine, if we were living in the days of Isaiah and we heard them speak them, would shock us. We wouldn't go, oh yeah, my Uncle Tom's into that stuff. We would think to ourselves, no way, no way could God's people ever get to a place that they would be that off base. Okay. It's a profound expression of rebellion and idolatry. In fact, notice what it says uh, in verse 5, simultaneously, they maintain a distance. And basically they say, we're too holy for you to get near. Okay. Now, either that's hypocrisy, that in the dark, they're one type of people, in the light, they put on a show. Or it may be even here when they say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, that's what they're saying to God. That they're saying, our worship is, is secret and elevated, and God, you can't be part of our club. But notice he says, these are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Now, if you go back to the worship of Israel, the sacrifices that burn on the altar of the temple are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And I think we've all had that experience. I have it every summer, whoever it is in our neighborhood who's the first to break out the charcoal barbecue, right? And you smell it, and you have this association of goodness and great eats, right? 
but have you ever been around a fire where the smoke is just invading your face and it, you can feel it burning the inside and your eyes are red and watering, right? Smoke can be more than one thing. And here, this worship that's personified is not a constant pleasing aroma, but a constant irritation to God. Verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. Right? Wasn't that the accusation of the men? Why are you silent? And he says, well, for one, I haven't been. For two, I won't be much longer. Right? He's going to speak in judgment. He says, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into the bosom the payment for their former deeds. Basically, to reiterate this again, the options presented in Jesus Christ is that he gives us mercy and grace or God is just with us. This is what justice looks like. It's repayment. And he says, I'll give you exactly what you deserve. But what God offers us in Jesus Christ is mercy. It's not getting what we deserve. In fact, it's more than that. It's grace. It's giving us something we don't deserve. It's a free gift that's available, but it has to be received Look at verse 8, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, don't destroy it, for there's a blessing in it. So will I do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. And so there's a limitation here in the judgment. Even here, with all that they deserve, we have this idea of a remnant again. He says, I'm not going to destroy them all. He says, verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a pasture for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and uh, fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. You see how fortune and destiny are probably capitalized in your Bible? This is speaking again of pagan worship, worshiping the gods of fortune and destiny. He says, I will destine you to sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes. That's another thing we saw in the lament. God, don't you see? He says, I do. I see what you're doing, and it's wicked. Okay. And chose to do what I did not delight in. Verse 13, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. My servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out in pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave my name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord your God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. There's obviously a dividing here. Two possible destinies held in contrast. Now, one of the things that I want to remind you is that even God speaking this way in advance is a mercy. God here is laying out in advance where life is heading. There's two outcomes. Choose between life and death. He doesn't hide the consequence. He doesn't lay out here. There's still time for repentance. There's still time to turn around. He says, verse uh, 
he says, my servants I'll call by another name, verse 16, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Now, I think another thing that's relatively striking about this passage and one that we should take to heart as human beings is if I'm right, and this lament should be understood as being theologically sound except for the fact that it's not authentic, that it's not real, that it wants God as a show, but not with repentance. It wants God in word, and it cries out for deliverance, but it doesn't want to turn away from the things that's enslaved it. One of the things that I want to point out is that there's a clear mistaken understanding that these folks have that they are religious, that they are the holy ones, that everything's okay, that they are the ones who can rightfully call out to God. And the thing is, when we look at the words of Jesus when the dust settles, when he talks about the end of all things, when he talks about the judgment that is to come, it's surprising how often shock and surprise pay, play into those concepts. He speaks to the religious leaders of his day who were convinced they were God's people. And he says, you know what? Many of you won't even be seated at the table of your father Abraham. And from all over the nations, people will flock and they will be there instead. Even when he uh, tells the parable in Matthew 25 where there's the dividing into the sheep, into the goats on the right hand and on the left, there's a surprise kind of in both sides. One side says, when? When did we see you? And the other says, when did we see you? The, the thing is, we are fully capable of human beings of a false but convincing self-justification. It says, I am okay. In fact, Jesus even warns one of the churches in Revelation about this. He says, your testimony, you tell everybody, I am wealthy, I am well-dressed, I can see very well, and I have need of nothing. And he says, but you are empty, and you are blind, and you were poorly dressed, you're naked. And he says, but you can't see it, you don't understand. Self-deception is one of the scariest things that human beings are capable of. But again, that's the value of this. James says that the word of God works like a mirror. Okay? And so when we read the scriptures, it's like looking at a reflection of ourselves. And as we see true righteousness, as we see what it really looks like to follow God, as we see uh, how the word speaks of this life and defines things, it's like turning a light on in our souls. Now, we are completely capable, like Israel here, of just stepping out of the light or using another mirror to refract it on someone else and go, yeah, look at that horrible person over there. But the light is also capable of doing its good work and showing us what's real and what's not, of penetrating down to the very core. But you have to want it. And one of the scariest things is even at that level is we're totally capable of using the Bible and instead of using it like a mirror, treating it like its own form of justification and going, oh, look, here's a thing in the Bible that I do. That's what good people do, therefore I'm a good person. We can use it, in fact, as a hammer to hit other people with and condemn them. We can do these things, but I fully trust 
that if you open yourself up to the word and say, okay, God, do your worst. Show me who I really am. Pray like the psalmist does. Search my heart, O God. Show me if there's any wrong thing in me. I think that's a prayer that God loves to answer. And not because he's malicious or vindictive or shaming, but because he's a good doctor and he wants to show the diagnosis and present the cure. That's what this is. Peter makes it the clearest. He says, why hasn't everything we're reading about here come to pass? God warns of wrath and judgment. Why hasn't he come yet? He says it's because God is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but desires all to come to repentance. Now, verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. God says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. I'm going to do Genesis 1, Mach 2. I'm going to begin again. And of course, this is the language that Revelation uses as John is looking and he says, and behold, I saw the new heavens and the new earth. Where does that language come from? It comes from Isaiah. He knows what he's looking at because he's read this promise here. But I want you to notice that there's a play on words between, um, between what was just said about what would be the good that happens for his servants in verse 16 and what we see in verse 17. Read it again. He who blesses himself in the land shall bless him by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the formal trouble, former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Behold, I create a new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. Okay. How is it the formal troubles are going to be forgotten? It's through this idea of the new heavens and the new earth. They're going to be replaced he says, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Now notice it says again, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Now again, if we go back to the lament, this also connects with the lament, right? God, hear our cries. Our city is destroyed. And he says, no, it will be new. It will be rebuilt. Again, it's almost as if he divides the audience. And even in the prayers of those lament, there are the faithful and the unfaithful. But notice as he illustrates what life will be like then, verse 20, no more shall be there in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, the idea of that second sentence, in the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed, is that they will be recognized of dying at a hundred because they don't have God's favor. Okay. Now, my grandmother lived to be 103. She's the only personal relationship I know to have done so. The idea of the author in Isaiah here is that that will be normative, right? That sickness and weakness and even age itself will somehow be restrained. But it is worth going, wait just a second, I thought we were talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And when we read John's picture of new heavens and new earth, we find two things here we don't find in the new heavens and the new earth. The first is death and the second is sin. I would suggest to you, just like we talked about a few weeks ago, 
That as the prophecies of the Old Testament are sometimes laid out right next to each other, but there's actually a distance between them. As we saw with Jesus in Isaiah 61, where he says, Today, these things have been fulfilled in your hearing, and that's true of the day of God's jubilee. But the day of God's wrath is still to come. And he kind of divides the line between. I would suggest the same thing here. We do find what we're reading about here in the book of Revelation in this millennial reign of Christ on earth that leads up to the new heavens and the new earth. And so they're in backwards order here in Isaiah. But there is a split there. There's two beholds. He says, behold the new heavens and the new earth. Behold this Jerusalem where the youngest will die at 100 years old. More of this in verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build uh, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Okay, again, pictures of safety and security. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Okay, now that verse is especially important if you understand the history of Israel because there's a generational wobble in the Bible. Okay, and so a good example of this uh, is to uh, look at Asa, who's followed by Josiah, who's followed by Manasseh. Okay, Asa is a bad king. Josiah is one of the greatest reformers of all the kings. Manasseh is the worst king in the history of Israel. And so it's kind of like um, when there was that Catholic-Protestant battle in the UK, and depending who was on the throne, oppression went one way or the other. It's that type of a wobble. You see it in Israel's history all the time, where there are generations where God moves, and there's revival, and there's restoration, and we see the same thing in the church. The idea here is that that wobble will come to an end, that one generation will be followed by another generation, and they will all be blessed. They will all... Uh, generation after generation be followers of God. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. And then notice this, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. Okay, this is reaching all the way back into the book of Genesis. And what we're seeing is a restoration of peace in the midst of the animal kingdom. Although it's pointed out here that the serpent still eats dust, right? That's that's the one piece of the curse that remains, right? That's in the judgment in Genesis chapter 3. The woman gets pain in child-rearing. Her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her. The man now toils where he used to just work, and now he'll return to the ground that he was taken out of, right? Sweat and thorns and thistles. And the serpent, what is his judgment? Cursed will you be going on the belly all the days of your life eating the dust. So there are things that aren't new in the new heavens and the new earth. He says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my mountains, says the Lord. Okay, and so there's this picture of this coming time. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, this thousand-year Jesus ruling on the earth from Jerusalem over all the nations period is um, between two great battles. One we already looked at in uh, in Revelation chapter 19 where Jesus show, shows up and deals with the enemies surrounding Jerusalem. But the other follows this thousand-year reign. That means that the people who take up arms against Jesus at that point are the same ones who have lived 
under his perfect peace and righteousness for a thousand years. It shows the significance of, um, of what's going on here. Uh, and if you read Revelation, it says at that point, Satan, who's kind of been put on hold for, on ice for a thousand years, is released. And it's clear that the reason is because he gives opportunity for them to make a choice. Because some of those people who live during those thousand years won't have lived before them. Like here, they may be born and live hundreds of years. They may live a long life, but they don't remember pre-Jesus. And they're given, just like in the garden, an option, a choice. And again, there is no other religion or philosophy that is so pessimistic on human nature that knows that we are capable of rebellion in a paradise on earth. It was true with Adam and Eve, and it will be true again here. All right, let's finish up here, chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And so God speaks here, and he basically looks beyond a temple. He looks beyond a city of Jerusalem. He says, it's all mine anyways. Isaiah told us earlier that where God is headed is to where the waters, like the waters cover the sea, glory covers the earth. Okay, that's what he's doing here. But also, I want you to recognize here, there's a direct denial that God needs us to do something for him. Basically, he he says, don't worry about rebuilding the temple. Don't try and make a home for me. I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth, right? That's the context. I'm going to do this great work. I'm going to bring about about salvation. And so the question is, what does he want then of us? If we're not called to build heaven, what does he want of us? And look at what it says at the second half of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What does God ask for us? Humility, contrition, and fear. And the idea of trembling there is clearly fear, but the idea of fear is, is one of elevating to utmost significance. In other words, the word of God is determinant in your life over other things, the opinions of other people, your own wishes and desires. That's the idea here. But notice he doesn't need someone who's strong, He doesn't even suggest here someone who's righteous. The idea of contrition implies unrighteous. Again, God basically is offering a new heavens and a new earth, and all we have to do to take it is humbly ask for it, contritely recognize we don't deserve it, tremble at his word. Verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. Now this is kind of a strange passage because it says basically people who worship God in the way that he requires in the Old Testament, it'll be received in a completely different way. I think in the context here, the idea is if you make this your evidence of righteousness, then it's just like clothing yourself in righteousness in the last chapter. It's just filthy rags. 
if this is your demonstration that says, this is what I stand on that makes me righteous, this is what proves that I am deserving of salvation, it won't work. The other possibility again here is that, again, we're talking about an outward display of religion with no inward heart. That's very significant to Jeremiah, but here, notice what it says at the end here of verse 3. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. You can go through the motions of the religion that God requires, but on the inside, your heart is far from him. He says, I also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. There is one other possibility here. The book of Hebrews lays out and basically says, now that Jesus has come, to turn back to the old ways of worship, to stand for the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifice, when they were just shadows of the reality that's found in Christ. He doesn't just say that's foolish, he says it's forsaking. It may be that the idea here is that they're continuing to persist in these things that were only shadows when God has provided everything they need in Christ. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. You brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they that shall be put to shame. It's hard not to hear in this those who follow Jesus and experience what he promised them they would follow, that their brothers and sisters would cast them out of their homes, would even put them to death. Verse 6, the sound of an uproar from the city, the sound of the a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering rep recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who's heard of such a thing? Right, this, is, this is where Netflix's new show, The Umbrella Academy, starts. As a bunch of women all over the world who were not pregnant suddenly have babies. The whole reason that that makes a story is because it's not a thing that happens. And God is talking about this and he says, Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Basically, he says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do quickly. It's going to be clearly miraculous. In fact, when you read about what happens next after we see Jesus clothed and leading the armies of heaven, it says, and all the armies of the beast gathered against him, and then the battle was over. It's instantaneous. There's no, uh, you know, eight-volume biography like World War II. It's none of those types of things. It's instantaneous. Okay. Now, he also makes a promise here. Verse 9, shall I bring point to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? He says it may come swiftly, but it is guaranteed. He says there's not going to be a reversal. I'm not going to change my mind. And then notice verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may, be nurse, may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breasts that you may drink deeply with her delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, and shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, 
as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. In other words, he says it's all going to happen at Jerusalem. That's going to be center stage for this great work that God's going to do and that's where we'll find our consolation. That's where we'll find our peace. But notice again, that's also where the wrath is. That's also where the judgment is. Verse 15, for behold... The Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind and render his anger and fury and his rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens following one in the midst eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice shall come to an end together declares the Lord. And so this is that same description we encountered earlier of surprising idolatry, except it also includes here uh, the eating of mice. Okay, it's, it's extreme. And so there's this culmination. Verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Now in the fullest and most significant sense, that will be fulfilled when Revelation 7-9 becomes reality, when a multitude innumerable from every tribe and every tongue shall gather around the throne of Jesus in praise. But also the idea here is that the whole world is going to see Jesus do something new, something big, and again, it's for the sake, not just of the Jews, but of the nations. Verse 19, and I will set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that those who have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And so what's envisioned here is, is people going out and carrying the message to the ends of the earth. In fact, the places that are listed here the only other place that they exist together like this in significance is Genesis chapter 10, what we call the table of nations. You remember Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and after the flood, it's from their lineage that all of the nations of the world come. Okay. It's those names from that list that we find on this list. Okay. And so it's almost like here there's a final sudden reversal of what happens in the Tower of Babel, whereas the people were scattered now they're gathered back together. Okay. But also here it says that this is going to happen because God is going to set a sign among them. Now if you look really closely at Matthew 24. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 29. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
That's the sign that Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about the final and full revelation that Jesus is Lord. But notice in verse 20, they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. In other words, there will be a great harvest and the harvest will be from all the nations and they'll become a, <coughs> a part and participant with Israel. And then notice verse 21, and some of them also, these Gentiles, I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Now remember, the Levites are unique in Israel because they're the only tribe that were qualified by God to serve as priests. However, earlier, Israel is also stated to be a kingdom of priests. And so the way that the Levites operate in Israel is the way Israel was supposed to operate in the world, making God known, being a touch point for God. Okay? But here it's gone full-fledged international, and it's not merely other tribes that will now be priests, but other nations that will be involved in this. And then notice verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. What's the statement? What's going on here? It says, one of the differences in this new heaven and new earth I'm going to make is that it's going to last. It's not going anywhere. And he says, also, and neither are you. What he's talking about here is a salvation. It's eternal. In fact, look at verse 23, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Okay, so it's a new place of worship and participation of salvation. And then notice verse 24. Here he ends with this beautiful picture of eternal salvation, but it still swings back to judgment. And remember, there's a structural reason for this. Starting with chapter 57, it says, uh, it finishes 57 saying, for there is no rest for the wicked. Repeating what was said in chapter 49, for there is no rest for the wicked. And so it's nine chapters for there is no rest for the wicked, nine chapters, for there is no rest for the wicked, and then nine chapters, and here we finish at the end of 66, and this is how we finish, verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now a couple of things. It's that language that Jesus picks up on when he talks about the judgment that is to come, worm that does not die and fire does not quench. But I also want to remind you that the original audience reading Isaiah have a touch point for this. Because it's during the days of Isaiah that Shennacherib surrounds Jerusalem with 185,000 men and God delivers them in an instant and they wake up the next morning and all 185,000 have been wiped out by an angel. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a time future and so just to close tonight, I want to look at two other passages that touch on verse 24 here. The first one is in Zechariah. The reason we're turning to Zechariah is not because he's the only one who references this final battle. It's because he writes after the return to Israel. Okay? So Isaiah writes before they go into Babylon. Zechariah writes after they've returned. Okay? And he speaks of it being still future. Okay? And so he says in Zechariah chapter 14... Uh, the easiest way to find Zechariah, in my opinion, is to find the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and turn backwards. 
especially since we went chapter 14. Look at what it says here in chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Side note, that's where Jesus ascends into heaven. That's where the angels speak to the disciples and say, just as you've seen Jesus leave, so also he will return. Okay. On the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Ezel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. That's also the days of the book of Isaiah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him on that day. There shall be no light or cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening there shall be time for light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as winter, and, on, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. It says the whole land will be turned into a plain, and then just to jump down and look at one more thing here. Look at verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, garments in great abundance, and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, and the mules, and the camels, and the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship. Okay, and so this points at the same thing. It expands on it. It describes it a little bit more deeply, but it speaks of the same thing and says its future. Now, if we look at the words of Jesus, he speaks from his day, and he points forward in his future, but instead of uh, finishing there, I want to finish... Um, again in, in Revelation 19. Here John being the last living apostle, about 50 years after the life of Jesus, is looking forward. He's telling of the coming uh, of Jesus and the great tribulation that Zechariah talks about. He lays out all of these things. Eventually he gets to the new heavens and the new earth that we mentioned. But here in chapter 19... Uh, after we're inter introduced to the King of Kings and Lord and Lords, pick up again in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse, and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received a mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh.
Now, those are hard words. They're dark words. Okay. But there is a consistency to what the Bible says about these things. And the recognition is probably best expressed uh, by Jesus when he talks about this time that we live in being like a field. And the field is sown with wheat and with tares. And I know none of you are wheat farmers, but wheat and tares look exactly the same until it's time to harvest. And then wheat actually has wheat kernels and can be eaten, and tares is just like wheat without wheat. It's just a plant that took the nourishment and grew up right alongside. And so there's a recognition that tares have been sown in the field and the master, his servants come and explain that an enemy's done it in the night and they say, should you uproot them right now? And he says, no, let them grow together. But when they're gathered, some will be gathered into the barns and the tares will just throw into the fire. The thing is, God has made everything necessary for salvation possible in Jesus Christ. He's offered it readily and freely and fully. But there are still those who will choose their own way. And that's not something we should despise or scorn or look down on other people because we know our hearts and we know the rebel still lives within. We know how actively even though, like Israel, we've seen God's goodness, and yet again we resist, and yet again we deny. But salvation is found in no other name. And like the author of Hebrews says, to reject Jesus is to reject salvation. It's a sobering word, but since it's where Isaiah ends, it's where we should as well. Let's pray. sometimes we don't know how to pray but we stand on these deep these deep truths of your goodness and your love and your justice we know Lord that one day we will stand with all the host of heaven and we will say with confidence righteous and true are your judgments O Lord we will recognize that you have been faithful and good and true and we can look at our own lives and see that. We can rejoice in the salvation that you've given us, the forgiveness that you've offered us, the cleansing that you've given us. We can agree with the lament that we find in Isaiah that says, you're our father, Lord. We're the clay, you're the potter. Make us again. And we're desperate for that, Lord. Keep us humble and contrite. Help us to tremble at your word. And we thank you, Lord, that that's all that you ask of us. You don't call for us to be strong or to be righteous or to speak boldly. You just call us to receive. We pray for a world that still needs you, a world still in rebellion, a world that you are patient with, a world that you are constantly giving warning to. We pray, Lord, that you would save that many would come and hear, that you would soften the hearts, that your message would go forth, that you would use us as you see fit to convey the salvation, to make the invitation.